Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Jehoshaphat, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Live, Radio 104.5 FM, and AM 930. It's great to have you with us another Monday evening, where we continue our reflections into the Protestant Reformation. If you have been listening over the past few weeks, we have hit the pause button from the great Christian thinkers to really uh, examine closely what was going on during the Reformation, and this is part three, our third week of reflections into uh, the Reformation, which has us talking about the Catholic Reformation, or the Council of Trent, and the events leading up to the Council of Trent. So I am very excited to engage this subject matter, and I will do so with my uh, sidekick here on Monday evenings, John O'Hara. John, great to have you with me another evening. Nice to be here again, Joe. Thank you. John, I just want to continue to thank our listeners who uh, send me their questions, local listeners, but also abroad uh, listeners who are tuning in from Brazil, Argentina, England, France, Spain, Italy, as well as uh, India and, and Turkey. You know, I, it's just uh, oh, wow. great to have a, a listening audience by way of podcast, of course, across the world. It's it's exciting, really, to know that um, the subject matter we engage here on this radio program here in our not-so-small city, I guess. It depends on how you define small. John, we're <laughs> roughly, what, 90,000 here in, yeah. in Northern California, Chico, California. So, John, welcome world. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, John, uh, the the Reformation. Before we get into the Council of Trent, I think there's something very important to talk about, and that's first the renewal that started to take place before the Catholic Reformation, the Council of Trent. What do I mean? There are very important players on the international stage that start arriving. I think figures we are all familiar with: Saint Ignatius of Loyola, Saint Francis Xavier. St. Peter Canisius, uh, St. Robert Bellarmine, um, St. Philip Neri. These are all men who arrived at that point post-Reformation that were bringing this interior renewal. Of course, St. Ignatius founded the Society of Jesus, otherwise known as the Jesuits, a community that he established in 1534, recognized by the Pope in 1539, okay? And then you have St. Francis Xavier. Now, there were six brothers who immediately followed uh, St. Ignatius, one of which was St. Francis Xavier. He goes to India and Japan. And then you have, again, St. Peter Canisius. St. Peter Canisius of Germany, who, oh, by the way, John, writes a catechism of the Catholic faith and uh, was respected by even yes. Protestants, uh-huh. right? Um, of course, St. Robert Bellamin, who I just mentioned, he was a very important player in the Council of Trent. Uh, in 1541, we have St. Ignatius' Spiritual Exercises, a manual, really, for, for Christian discernment. Um, lots of interior renewal going on that uh, is really part of the uh, larger Catholic Reformation, the larger picture as we start talking about the post-effect of, of the Reformation. And when you start talking about post-effect, Maybe, John, I can offer an image for our listening audience and what is happening. In 1524, what you had was maybe the arrow moving five degrees to the right or left. Now, initially, if you're just five degrees over, maybe you're not that far from the center. 
But if that five degrees to the right or left continues to move according to its trajectory, it's going to become greater in its distance from the original direction of the original point. In effect, what I'm talking about here is the ripple effect. And we must be attentive to that, and certainly the Catholic Church was. This is why she did come together and see that, yes, it is time to reform. Correct. Okay, a little bit about Ignatius of Loyola. He reformed himself first. Amen. And Amen. once he went through that, he struggled and finally founded the Jesuits. He wanted to go fight the Muslims, yes, but he wound yes. up saying, we're going to be dedicated to the Pope. Amen. Okay, so anyway, interesting. Okay, yeah. so just a little bit about politics. The Catholic Church lost England totally due to politics. Mm -hmm. Now, the next country to be lost would be the Germanic areas. And that also had largely to do with politics. Germany at that time not being a country, but it being the Holy Roman Emperor. And his job from Charlemagne was to protect the Pope, which he did very poorly. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about a century here. I mean, mm -hmm. we're talking about a millennium here. There was a lot of political issues going on between France, the Holy Roman Empire, and they could not get along. And then we had the Papal States, the Pope being a politician with an army to protect his Papal States. This was all going on at the time. And they realized the need to convoke a consul. Mm -hmm. But they could not because France and Germany were in dispute. And if you had it in Rome, no Lutherans would come. And if you had it in the Germanic areas, and the Holy Roman Empire was all over the place. It was in southern Italy as well. Um, it was due to family, mm -hmm. not so much due to geography. You know, where were you going to hold the council? Around 1528, there was a consul, a consul in France called Sens. There was numerous consuls, but Sens was one which kind of hit the nail on the head in what should we discuss? And they decided justification was the issue that a larger consul needed to address. And when Trent finally got together, quite not late, well, yeah, rather late in the game, mm -hmm. The first thing they hit was the main issues in which there was disagreement with the Protestants, and that would be justification and the sacraments. Mm -hmm. And then later on, they got to the reform of the clergy. Mm -hmm. So they got the issue correct. And Trent if you was the most important council between the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215 with Innocent III and the Vatican II of 1962-65. And if you take a look at it, the Catholic Church kind of uh, remained the same once Trent was over in 1563. Mm -hmm, you know, and mm -hmm. it didn't change much after that. So whatever they did was was quite interesting. Yeah, and I think it'd be important as we're talking about this, John. Why a gap between 1528 and when the Council of Trent actually convenes in 1545? Because there's um, something going on on the wider stage, if you will. Yes, there is. Take a look at Pope Clement the Seventh. He was Pope from 1523 to 1534. Now, he's a typical Renaissance Pope, which had a numerous, shall we say, Sixth Commandment lapses. Mm -hmm. but, um, <laughs> but he was kind of a—you just couldn't pin him down. He agreed mm -hmm. with everybody. Mm -hmm. And uh, consequently, you couldn't get a consul. Between the arguments between the French and the Germans, you could mm -hmm. not get a consul. He was very indecisive. Very, yeah, he was indecisive. <laughs> now let's get to Pope Paul III. His name was Alessandro Farnese, Italian, came from a very well-to-do family. Mm -hmm. And he was made a cardinal in 1492 at a very young age. He was not a priest, mm -hmm. but he was a cardinal. And uh, he uh, lived a rather reprobate life. He had a mistress with three daughters and a son. However, he fired the mistress, and he became seriously involved in the church, and 1512, he broke with his mistress. By 1518, he was ordained a priest. Mm -hmm. 
not all of our popes were priests when they were elected. They had to be, yes, you know, this, yes, this, that's uh, right. But anyway, he was ordained a priest and made a bishop almost immediately. I think he had a diocese in Parma for a while. Mm-hmm. He was in the Curia almost his entire life because he was a, a Vatican politician. Mm-hmm. And after the death of um, Pope Clement, he was elected rather quickly. And it was his idea to try to bring peace among the Christian people, including Protestants, which was, he was unable to do. He wanted to have a council, and he wanted to have a crusade against the Turks. And let me make a, one comment. We have political issues going on in Europe with Holy Roman Empire, that would be Germany, versus France. And then the Muslim Turks were invading from the southeast. They were coming up towards Vienna. So they were, I mean, and they had a very powerful army, and this war was to go on for quite some time, and they could have won. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, uh, you know, this was a much bigger threat than ISIS. I mean, these yeah. guys were really together, the Turks. So, the, you know, this Europe was threatened mm-hmm. uh, from, from that point. So we, we had some tough things going on. Yeah, John, 500 years removed, it is so easy for us to be critical of the Church. And, and, you know, we say, well, why didn't they just get together and make the changes necessary? But as you are talking, it is clear that there are a convergence of things going on that is pulling the Church in many different directions. So it was very difficult to actually convene and be present to the things that they needed to be present to. Selecting a city was problem number one. Mm -hmm. Pope Paul III suggested Mantua. Well, the trouble was that was in the area somewhat controlled by the Holy Roman Empire, so France refused to come. <clears throat> Mantua said, we don't, really, we don't really want it here. And then finally Mantua said, if you're going to come here, we want like millions of dollars mm-hmm. in security purposes. So Mantua was out. Venice, well, that was also under another duchy of the Holy Roman Empire. They couldn't quite do that. Mm-hmm. So, and it couldn't be in Rome. So Trent, which is 100 miles south of Innsbruck and 400 miles north of Rome, but still in the general territory of the Holy Roman Empire, was selected, mm-hmm. and that was good enough. It wasn't, uh, it was a little bit bigger than Chico, but uh, it, was, uh, it, was, <laughs> it was big enough. Sure, sure. And when you consider the people that went there with their horses mm-hmm. and the hay, mm-hmm. I mean, and the food and all this stuff, mm-hmm. and, but there was a cardinal there, his name was Cristofaro Madruzzo. Mm-hmm. He was... Very important figure. Well, he was a great hospitaler, if you want. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah. he, his hospitality was immaculate, mm-hmm. and he mm-hmm. took care of these people as best he could. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they came. And Trent was the location. Yeah, Don, it's really to appreciate the background into what goes on during a council like this. I mean, these are not men who just convened at one place. They all stayed at one monastery or a convent and then just woke up in the morning and went to some big hall and started meeting. No, it was much more involved. There are many more details, and it involved extensive uh, planning. All very important. So, John, here we are. Uh, the Council of Trent, and there are very important things in play, as we've already touched upon. So let's really highlight these now and talk about them a little bit. Certainly, Trent affirms the Catholic belief in the seven sacraments instituted by Christ. That's first and foremost. Again, man's justification by faith shown by the fruit of faith, good works in charity. Also, Trent affirmed the revelation of God to his church through both the Bible and apostolic tradition— of course, highlighting what that great passage that comes to us from 2 Thessalonians 2.15, right? Affirming that revelation comes through sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Also, the nature of the Mass as a perpetuation or representation of our Lord's one sacrifice on Calvary. 
The Council of Trent also corrected many of the abuses criticized by Catholics and Protestants alike. Most notably, the office of the indulgence seller was abolished and proper devotion to Mary and the saints was promoted. So these are things that were on the table that were being talked about and ultimately reaffirmed. And uh, I might add, they had excellent, the, the best theologians in the Catholic Church were there. Mm-hmm. They were invited and mm-hmm. they were there. A man named Maroni, I don't think I'm pronouncing his name correctly, he went on to become a cardinal at the, and at the very third session. He was quite good. Also, the orders were there, uh, five major orders were there with their abbot. Mm-hmm. There was quite a few bishops, not all the bishops. France did not send all their bishops, but there was enough bishops there to really get things going. They began on Gaudete Sunday, I believe, in, mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. 1540s. And um, now the Pope was not there, but he sent legates. And a legate was the only one who could actually put something on the table to be discussed. You couldn't bring something up from the floor. And just, it was a three-day horse trip from Rome to Trent and a three-day horse trip back. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the Pope and his helpers would write out these issues. They would be transported up to Trent. They would be answered and come back. So mm-hmm. you did have communication between Rome and Trent. It wasn't, it, for the day, it wasn't bad at all. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 so what you're reminding us, John, yeah. is, is they didn't have internet. They didn't, no. They weren't uh, texting each right, other. No, yeah. you know? <laughs> this is a, a very tedious thing that demands patience. Um, that demands discernment, that demands prayer. All of these things are really uh, essential to understand um, what's going on in this council. That is correct. And it, we mentioned justification, and just to hit on it again, they hit on that right away, and justification comes through God's grace. Mm-hmm. And God's grace comes to us, but we must cooperate with it. Mm-hmm. You can't mm-hmm. just eschew it and hope to be saved mm-hmm. without cooperating with it. Yeah, and and what it highlights, John, is the essence of faith, Um, and it could never be reinforced enough to talk about man's justification by faith in light of the fruit of faith, good works and charity, is again to speak to the heart of what faith is, faithfulness, right? That responsive listening, that firm response, that beautiful definition that comes to us from Romans 1.5 and Romans 16.26, the obedience of faith, as Paul talks about it, which translates better as the obedience that is faith or, or the obedience that springs from faith, right? So when you put it in this proper biblical context, John, when you talk about faith, Often you're talking about faithfulness, the Hebrews emunah. So what the Council of Trent is doing is working this definition out in light of what you were just talking about, grace, in light of grace. Trent went on, and then uh, a typhus uh, epidemic broke Mm, out, mm. and they were going to move it to Bologna, and that did not work out that well. They may have had a meeting there, too, in Bologna where part of the people, but that kind of fell apart. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Pope Paul III died. And then he is replaced by Julius III, and they call a second session, which does meet for a few years, and they uh, talk mainly about the Eucharist. And then they have to break up again. Germany and France keep having these kerfuffles, and they have to break up on account of that. And then finally they meet again for a last session. What are they talking about? I, I mentioned the representation of, of Calvary on, on the altar. It is to understand, John, that there was confusion and this extends beyond Martin Luther, but into other denominations at this point, about what was going on up there on the altar. Yeah. You know, are you suggesting that this sacrifice is actually the sacrifice of Christ? Are you suggesting that you, the priest, are in persona Christi offering this one sacrifice? Is that what you're saying? Yes. 
Yes, we must remember what our Lord said. Do this in remembrance of me. This was his first commandment, John. He didn't say, write this. He, later he would say, say this. But first he said, do this. Do this in remembrance of me. So once again, 1,500 years later, the church is made to reflect upon sacred scripture and reaffirm its core identity, which of course is the Eucharist. Um, the Eucharist being the source and summit of our faith. Yeah, at the end of the Eucharistic prayer, the priest offers up the consecrated host and wine to God the Father. Here is your gift, mm. your son, mm. uh, in communion with the Holy Spirit. Quite, quite moving. And, and John, Trent affirmed that word, um, remembrance. That word was very important to Trent. And again, that, that's the, the Latin is amnesis, which is, yes, it translates... Uh, re-presentation, but it is, a, it is an actualization of what happened 15 years ago. This is the power of God. You know, I, I get a lot of questions about this from just not our Protestant brothers and sisters in Christ, but also Catholics, our, our own friends, John. And one of the things we must remember is, is this a miracle? Of course this is, this is a miracle. <laughs> but before we say, I just can't believe that, our whole faith rests in one miracle after another, to the least of which, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus yes. Christ, right? So let us put the miracle of the Eucharist in the context of other miracles to appreciate what we are saying here, um, because often I think we get lost in looking at one thing, not being mindful of the bigger thing, which of course is the Paschal mystery of Christ. Uh, and so as we speak to this, we do so, John, because the Council of Trent over a course of days, weeks, and months, was discerning and calling upon the Holy Spirit to seek better understanding about the things we are talking about now. And it also listed the seven sacraments, so mm -hmm. there would be no doubt. All these seven sacraments were instituted by Christ, mm -hmm. and it, it, it defined them quite well. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. That was another thing that came out of the first two sessions. Yeah, and what do we mean by that? Jesus Christ instituted seven sacraments. Jesus Christ didn't say this is sacrament one, this is sacrament two. But what, again, the Church did also affirm, John, was that the revelation of God is sacred uh, scripture and sacred tradition. So sacred tradition is constantly interpreting sacred scripture, and what sacred tradition is doing in her role as magisterium, teacher, right, is looking upon the sacred text and clearly identifying seven sacraments that were instituted by Christ. They also said the Latin Vulgate is the Bible, mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. that, that, had, that had been around for, well, since St. Jerome, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. but th this, that was it. Now, the Latin Vulgate has been changed slightly since Erasmus, when they found a few little, we're talking mm -hmm. about a, a, some words that they thought better fit. I mean, we're not talking anything major at all. Mm -mm. Jerome's Latin Vulgate is the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, another aspect of all of this, John, as relates to the Council of Trent, another often overlooked piece, is the renewal of the seminary system. I had spent... Session three, yes. Yes, I, I had spent some time with that because this might be one of its, its greatest fruits, really, because of the more wide-ranging renewal it brings. Certainly, it clarified its doctrine, but when you start talking about practical change, now you have bishops going to their home diocese, and for all intents and purposes, bishops being assigned to diocese, right? Um, and establishing these reforms, establishing these changes, that lead change being we need to renew the seminary system, because the Council of Trent did identify in that third session 
the importance of the priesthood being formed in the deposit of faith, because that was another thing that was so lost up to that point. Yeah, Trent felt that we have to reform the clergy mm-hmm. more so than the laity, and therefore uh, you if one bishop per diocese, and that bishop had to reside there. And uh, the example of Milan has been brought up. That was probably the wealthiest diocese in Christendom, and the bishop hadn't lived there for 80 years. I mean, mm-hmm. he was too busy collecting the money he had to pay to get the diocese in the first place. I mean, these were very lucrative positions if mm-hmm. you could get one. Mm-hmm. So one bishop, and you had to reside in the diocese, and if you were a priest, you resided in your parish, and you didn't go wandering around. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then you have to go to a seminary and be properly educated to be a priest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it took off. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the way it, it still is organized. Mm-hmm. And uh, it worked. I mean, that this was the face of Catholicism for the next 400 years. Yeah, it really was. And it's interesting when you think about this practically, and fast forward 500 years, here we are, John in Chico, California, uh, we are in the Sacramento Diocese, which by demographic, if it's not the largest diocese, it's one of the largest dioceses. For square miles. Yeah, yeah, in, in, in the state, if not country. I, I heard country, someone told me country, I haven't researched that. But anyhow, it's a very large diocese. And there are a lot of parishes within the immediate Sacramento area. We are about an hour and a half, hour 45 minutes north. And there are many other parishes that are north of us that at times we feel like, well, maybe we're not being, quote-unquote, ministered to. And so what do we do? We, we, we grumble, we complain, they're forgetting about us. Imagine what it was like 500 years ago, yeah. right? So we have to appreciate the significance of the change, right? We're certainly here in Chico being ministered to. I don't want to suggest to our listeners out there that we're not being ministered to, because we are. We have an auxiliary bishop now and everything else. So anyhow, I speak to this because... What took place 500 years ago not only brought about the renewal that was needed then, but as you mentioned, John, these are things that have not been changed for a very long time. I'm not sure that Protestantism spread much after Trent. Mm. I think that Protestant countries by 1663, by 1563, remained Protestant, Mm -hmm. and Catholic countries remained Catholic, and may be that way to, to today. Yeah. In the end, when we look back, John, on the Reformation itself, we're not going to sit here and say, oh, happy fall, <laughs> because oh, yeah. it's, it's not that kind of thing. I heard someone say that, that, that. That's not true. It's not that kind of thing. But what we have learned in our year and a half, John, is every time there's a decline in spirituality, every time there's a decline in the life of the Church, on the other side of that decline, maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years out, there's a robust renewal. Hmm? What's going on there? I think when times are difficult, it has a way of sharpening our focus on what matters. And what you had going on in the early to mid-16th century is a sharpening of focus out from what was going on during Luther's time. And so we don't say, oh, happy fault, but there was great renewal that still is having its effects on the life of the church today. And I think we need to appreciate that for what it is. Um, what have we had this renewal if the Reformation didn't happen? Well, we don't know. I mean, that, that's, just, that's just left to speculation. But we are grateful for the men and women who stepped forward during this time and really brought about the renewal that was so needed. Yes, it, it was a, a fantastic situation. Who knows? We may be going through a renewal in our own lifetime. We all have heard that there is some decline in the amount of practicing Christians. Mm-hmm. I regret to say that. Mm-hmm. Of all mm-hmm. denominations, I regret to say that. I might remind our listening audience that the 1950s was a time of 
huge religious enthusiasm in the United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Billy Graham filled up Yankee Stadium twice mm-hmm. in the 19, around 1957-58. I mean, mm-hmm. it was uh, quite a to-do. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't, you know, and, and maybe it, you know, so things, the 1960s were not that good. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the it wasn't really, it was the culture that changed yeah. and the morals that go along with it that changed. Mm-hmm. And uh, freedom became my personal desires, usually for some sort of personal gratification that kind of became the conscience. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But, well, it's important that you bring this up, John, because again, as we fast forward 500 years, it's to appreciate that there is a decline. It's objective. This isn't yeah. you and I carrying on um, subjectively. No, this is objective. There is a profound decline in faith itself. And so this is why, this is why you are seeing today, like 500 years ago, men and women beginning to rise up with heroic acts of charity new religious communities being founded everywhere, John. It's incredible. I think we're going to look back on this time, 50 years, 100 years, 150 years um, for now, and say, wow, what an age of, of holiness, what an age of sanctity, what an age of sainthood, because there are many men and women around us yes. who are standing up in light of this culture of death, really proposing a new way of life which, of course, is bringing about a deeper understanding of a culture of life. Well, I just continue, John, to thank you for the gift of your time as we continue our reflections each and every Monday evening. You really do um, contribute so much, and I know our listening audience is appreciative, John, so thank Thank you. you. Um, Why don't we go ahead and wrap up in a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.